Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting their system. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at LNXCHK on Twitter. Today, I'm joined by John Alsbaugh, a co-founder and principal at Adaptive Capacity Labs. You might know John from the famous Flickr talk from the Velocity Conference years ago, if you're not totally new to DevOps. Um, but he's working on some great stuff now. So welcome to the show, John. Fill us in on what kind of stuff you're doing these days. Thanks for having me, Mandy. I'm excited to talk about some of these things. The thing that we've been doing with Adaptive Capacity Labs, we've been doing a mobile book going on three years now, is pretty simple, actually. Simple to say, not super simple to do which is helping organizations make progress learning from incidents. And we do that a bunch of different ways, but for the most part, the part that's most rewarding for us is to help coach and train groups on one way of saying it is sort of like having their own internal NTSB. Analyzing incidents, we have a strong stance that analyzing incidents goes much further, uh, goes much beyond to do it effectively than your standard, you know, template. So that's what we've been doing. And it's been a lot of fun. Cool. What kind of things are you finding when you're working with folks? Like what's the state of the the industry right now? Are are folks already have a a practice in place that you're improving? Or are you like helping folks get started from zero? So the short answer is sort of equal parts exciting and worrisome. (laughs) (laughs) We've seen a number of organizations all the way from smaller I wouldn't say early, early stage, but certainly smaller established startups all the way to, you know, tens of thousands of staff on, you know, multiple continents types of organizations. We see all sorts of things in in the details, but as far as patterns are concerned, I would just, you know, I'd just say that it's, it's slightly worrisome in that learning from incidents is happening. As my colleague uh, Richard Cook would like to say, is you can't actually get people to not learn. <laughs> the question isn't whether learning is happening; it definitely is. The question is whether you're supporting it, and what people learn is always an open question. Sometimes, what people learn is going to postmortem meetings is a huge waste of time, and it's a check the box sort of chore. And so, it's exciting mostly because we're hoping there's a I would say a perspective shift. What we like to say is the expertise is coming from inside the house. We're much better in the software engineering, and I say that in the broadest sense, industry, the, 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 the community of practitioners, we're much better at coping with these increasingly complex systems that we, that we design. The issue is that how we understand them, how we, what we've said is sort of recalibrating our understandings as incidents arise, it's not well supported. It's not well captured. It happens almost tacitly. Um, it's definitely happening, but it's pretty sort of narrow and localized. And so we find a lot of organizations run through, you know, what the typical or sort of conventional approach is to a postmortem. They do the things that organizations have been writing about for a while now. But what we find is it's captured in a way that makes it pretty difficult for anybody who wasn't there and involved with the incident or at the very least familiar with some of the esoteric details about the technology that's involved, 
it's pretty difficult to get an understanding of the real substance of it. And we know this is because engineers don't go seeking out reading your typical postmortem report. We always ask potential clients, how do you do post-incident activities? And they say, oh, well, we do this and we have the postmortem meeting. And then, and then we say, well, do you write these up somewhere? Oh, yes, of course. You never want a, a good crisis to go to waste <laughs> and you know, a, 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 all sorts of, um, sort of cliched banal sayings. And they say, oh, yes, and we keep that in our wiki or in Confluence or, or Google Docs or whatever. And then we always ask, who reads them? And thus far, we don't get many answers other than, oh, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, which leads you to the understanding of, well, if no one's reading them. Who's learning? Yeah. Do you see that too? Like there's a, there, of course, there's the, like a group of us nerds who will read anybody's postmortem when they put it out, like just for our own edification. But like, do you see many of those folks out there? Like any any kind of, of horror story. We love to, to read some of that stuff when it gets posted, but. Yeah. Back to sort of exciting and worrisome. I, the one thing that is exciting is that there's a pretty fast growing community looking to understand how to do this more effectively and, you know, borrowing and really in, in enthusiastic diving headfirst into understanding how different industries do this work, what those challenges are, what opportunities we have in software versus, say, aviation or, or medicine or nuclear power. And it, it is, it's growing quickly. The learning from incidents um, sort of community started by, by Nora Jones, I think sometime last year, the learningfromincidents.io site. This is a, a quickly growing group, and that's, that's really exciting. One of the most significant differences, and it kind of explains why these things are more often than not written to be filed versus written to be read, is that for the most part, they're sort of follow the template and, and in Mad Lib's way, you know, you've got a handful of, you know, sort of freeform text fields that you can sort of fill in, but it doesn't capture what makes the incident difficult. And without that information, we want to know about red herrings that, that people followed. We want to know about what was surprising. What was surprising to some people, but not others? We want to know what was difficult in handling. The, was it understanding what was happening that was difficult? Maybe it was pretty straightforward to understand what was happening or easy to get some confidence about what's happening, but more difficult to do something about it or more difficult to weigh between a couple of options, both, you know, all of which have some, you know, potential downsides if you, if you were to follow them, that sort of thing. And this is what makes for stories. This is what makes for stories. When we talk with organizations, we almost always want to talk straight with engineers. We don't really waste too much time on talking to technology leaders. And I say that as a, <laughs> as a former CTO, <laughs> Because no, they they are distanced, sure, right? They're, they're distanced from the you know from the hands-on work. And when we talk with engineers, we ask them pretty open-endedly, "Tell us about an incident. Tell us about an incident that comes to mind." We don't give them much more prompt than that or a criteria. And what comes to mind are good stories. What makes a good story? Well, you can tell even if this engineer doesn't exactly identify as being a storyteller or a good writer or anything like that. They'll tell the story because it makes for a good story. And what the elements of, of a good story is to include struggle <laughs> and difficulty. And I mean, it's as straightforward as people remember 
It's they things stick out for people when elements and qualities of the narrative involve, you know, descriptions of what people found difficult. And and other engineers are, you know, and Mandy, you've you've you and I have known each other for a long time. There's how many sort of late nights at the Velocity Conference around the bar are people telling these types Absolutely. of stories to each I've other? I've been on call in, in 10 years and I still have anxiety dreams about, you know, some of the, the incidents that happened when, when I was still running stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, and then again, to sort of the state say the perhaps obvious thing is that if you don't remember something, how can you say that you've learned it? But then, of course, the, that's the difficulty, and this is effectively the business model of Adaptive Capacity Labs, which is you have a finite amount of time to produce a thing that you want to have the greatest depth and the greatest accessibility, or the greatest uh, sort of uh, the broadest audience. And so that's where you know learning these skills are, which involves interviewing and analysis of what people have written and what people have said before, what past incidents that have connections to the incident you're looking at, all of those sorts of things. Absolutely. So you mentioned the NTSB, aviation, medicine, nuclear power, these industries that have a much longer history than sort of what we're looking at right now in software engineering. Like, what are we learning? There's a lot of higher stakes. And I, I, I've read some of the like human error books and some of the other things. And like, don't read them when you're on an airplane, right? Like that's, you know, trauma <laughs> inducing for everyone around you. But what, what are we pulling in? What, what are you looking at to borrow from, from some of these other places? And your, your partners have expertise in some of these areas that they're, they're sort of bringing to bear as well. So like, what are we, what are we bringing in? So my answer to this question is, I'd say different than it was, oh, even about five years ago. So you're absolutely right. Starting with the the fact that these other, you know, quote unquote, safety critical domains have a much longer history. It also means that they've adapted and, and certainly responded to like really notable accidents in the past in ways that sometimes are productive and sometimes aren't productive. And so at a high level, understanding how, say, or reading, so for example, reading how nurses, so there's a, there, the, how nurses detect issues in a neonatal intensive care unit, you know, where the patients actually don't speak English because they're babies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they can't tell you, they're, you can't ask them what's going on with them and, and how are you feeling and that sort of thing. And so- Stories in that environment, I mean, makes up a huge part of Gary Klein's career, who studies naturalistic decision making under pressure. And and so these are all cognitive work problems. They're all people attempting to cope with uncertainty and ambiguity and complexity um, when there are no easy answers. So from at a high level, there's a boatload. And of course, you know, you have to simultaneously read about these things, but you know, at the same time, making connections in, in the software world. The things that we've got an opportunity to sidestep, there's some barriers to learning from incidents in those, those other domains that hopefully we can sidestep. For example, accident investigation in some of these other domains isn't exactly as straightforward as you think in the way that getting data, getting information from people who are there can be difficult. There are some domains where, you know, you'll say, oh, you know what, can I talk to you about this incident? Can I talk to you about this accident? And there's that sort of thing. And the practitioner, whether it's a uh, doctor or a power plant operator, might and 
quite often do respond with, oh, sure, let me just make sure that I have legal counsel. Sure, yeah. Or let me make sure that I have my union rep with me. And so the good news is that software doesn't have that sort of onerous regulation situation uh, uh, outside of sort of legal frames. But as uh, as J. Paul Reed said, you know, when he started Redeploy, one of the reasons why he wanted to, and I'm in firm support of talking about resilience and talking about these topics, at least via his uh, the, the conference um, he created, was, look, there's going to be a future where it's possible that decisions like, well, you need to have some sort of you know, cover your ass protections in place before you'll say, oh yeah, here's how I saw this outage go down. And the question is, and what he said um, at that first redeploy was, are we going to, we in the industry, the tech industry, want to describe a future that we want and we think is productive or other people will decide for us? And so, um, so yeah, that, that's just, I mean, I can go on and on. There are, there's, there's differences and similarities. It just requires translating and bridging. Yeah. And if, if there's one thing that I would want listeners to think of is it's not a, you know, a, sort of a wholesale taking of a practice and just blindly applying it. Sure. Yeah. You can't cargo call all that stuff in. And part of it too, like, like thinking about what happens in public, right. Versus, mm-hmm. you know, when we have a, a plane crash or a nuclear meltdown or some of these like big high stakes, very public, very broad featured things that are going to end up in the news for weeks at a time as they sort of like trickle out. And then even, even some of the biggest security breaches and things like that, like they're out of the news cycle fairly rapidly. And like the, mm-hmm. the sort of the average person I feel like doesn't have like the consumer of the news basically isn't as invested in like what's going on with a security breach and like doesn't have the personal connection to it the way they do say a crash of some side or some other like major disaster that way and like right as things go on and like the the rest of our lives become more and more integrated with computation and like everything else that's going on and like my supercomputer in my pocket and all that stuff do you see people changing the way they react to these things like i think I feel like now things are kind of blasé and like, unless you've had your identity stolen, like people are kind of sloppy about like where they, they put their data and like the impacts of some of these other like outages and things that happen aren't part of their day-to-day discourse. I I think I agree. You know, it's a good question. I'm, I'm, you know, I spend most of my time not really thinking about sort of the broader audience um, or sort of consumers but um, more about even people who have an opportunity mm-hmm. inside an organization, inside of Twitter, inside of Facebook, inside of Etsy, inside of, you know, the real sort of messy guts of these services. And uh, it's how it's quite difficult to ask somebody about a, an incident two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> so the people who are closest don't have very much insight to begin with. So how could we imagine other, you know, how could we imagine consumers being able to make informed choices from an outsider perspective? The one thing that this rings a bell for me is how quickly those of us in the tech industry will read or, and, and take, you know, if you've, if you've read a blog post about an incident that happened at a a different company, a company that's not yours, Mm -hmm. right? There are certainly some organizations that are better at doing that than others. And some of the stories make 
you know, uh, real compelling reading. Sure. Um, I would imagine, I would imagine the, the outage Cloudflare had last year that the posts they wrote surrounding the sort of the sometimes really surprising behaviors that a regex can yeah. produce. I'm sure it, it made excellent reading, but the thing that we ought to, and it made for excellent reading because I don't know of an engineer who wouldn't, uh, who wouldn't be able to see themselves yeah. <laughs> in the words of that now, but we have to remember that's not an analysis. Yeah. When you see a blog post, it's written for a very particular audience. There's information and data that even if they did include, wouldn't make sense. Sure, absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. for us, it, it, uh, um, and so there's a whole bunch of detail and jargon. And so the, there's a sort of an outside perception uh, and n- not even driven by um, any sort of motivation to deceive or, 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 or misdirect, although that absolutely does happen. Learning from an incident in the broadest way would mean that necessarily the you would think that the internal the write up about an incident has richer detail mm-hmm. than the outward yes. facing one and to assume that they need to be or even could be symmetrically identical is a thing that we sometimes maybe a grass is always greener sort of uh, situation you know to assume that oh yeah that's what happened well, I'm not entirely sure that that all of the details are included there. Yeah, that are significant to the case. Sorry, I went off on a little bit of no, a tangent that, there. No, but <laughs> like I'm sitting here thinking, like, okay, so I, I'm pretty new to PagerDuty, and I just went through like our onboarding and like a bunch of training, and I'm like, yeah, like you bring your engineers in, and like here's this opportunity for them to like see how the the, the organization functions. You read back through all the recent incidents and you know, figure out how things get learned. And I'm like, there's a yeah. lot of rich material there for, for your folks to, to learn from. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you would hope, right? right? And we would say that, um, you know, especially, I mean, in the case of being new to an organization, this is a significant, this is a huge opportunity. And one of the things that we say with, our, with the, the companies that we work with that is as at least starts out as a thought exercise. And, and amazingly, some have done pretty well sort of practically outside of a thought exercise, which is, can you take an incident, any incident, I mean, blindly reach into wherever you keep those things, hand it to Mandy, I'm using you as an example, and have her read it and then ask her what questions she has after. Mm-hmm. And the quality of those questions, I mean, if are, are your questions as basic as, who wrote this? Right. How many people were involved? If there's parts of the write-up that you don't understand, that's a place to, to sort of put effort. Yeah. You know, it's an iterative process. You know, if you have good questions, you're probably, you know, if you've got good questions, like the people who are there, like, oh, that is a really good question. I, I don't know. Um, then you're probably in some, in some good shape. If you're asking some basic questions, eh, probably got some room for improvement. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, so coming up to the, the, the last couple of minutes here, while we have some time, one of our um, sort of recurring little features is to debunk a myth. So there's plenty of things that, that are maybe misconceptions or myths or things around like incident, incident response, incident learning. What's, what's a common myth or misconception that, that you might want to debunk? And, you know, I maybe plant the like discussion about root cause or like something <laughs> like that, that 
yeah. causes big Twitter threads when it gets up. Yeah, of course it does. So I was thinking, I knew you were going to ask this question <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was thinking about that. I'm going uh, to maybe sidestep okay. um, myth about root cause because frankly, I'm a little, I guess, somewhat exhausted from, from talking about it. Here's a, I think a belief, I don't, you know, it's certainly a myth, mm-hmm. but a, certainly a, a, but a, maybe kind of an implicit belief. And that is that, that you can take uh, the story, the, uh, an analysis of uh, these complex events that we call incidents and distill or sort of, sort of reduce it to a kind of like, you know, pulling juice out of a, out of an orange with a syringe, right? Like I'm going to get you this concentrated lessons and, um, and here are the lessons, here are the lessons learned. And then that belief is pretty poor because different people will find new or different understandings Mm -hmm. depending what their experience is, depending on where they sit in the organization. So there's not a one size fits all here's we've extracted, you know, these quote unquote lessons learned because when you believe that, then it seems as if the problem that you have or the challenge that you have is dissemination. That's not what we see. We, what we see, and that's not how learning works. Different people learn different things at different, in different ways and different times. If I were to, you know, give a, a really well done incident analysis to 10 different engineers, some of which are close to, to um, the tech involved and some that are for more distant, I would want, expect multiple people to find multiple things of interest surprising insights, that sort of thing. Sometimes, you know, one group would say, wait, you didn't know that? I thought that everybody knew that. And so that's the sort of the myth that I that somehow there can be the one true canonical story mm-hmm. and that everybody will equally get everything out of it that the author intends. That's, that is, I think, is one of the sort of more devious or, or sort of, uh, that's sort of a, um, maybe an implicit belief that, that people have. Yeah, it's very, very tempting to go searching for that when some of the things happen. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. The last thing that I would say on this is, is that for incident analysis to be effective, the job is not for the person analyzing the incident to understand the incident just themselves. The job is to understand how others understood the incident. If you think about incident analysis as discovering what people will find interesting to read about later, you're in better shape than going to look for the, you know, the grounded objective truth, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist to begin with. Awesome. So. Ah, okay, very <laughs> cool. All right, uh, two other sort of recurring questions. Uh, things we kind of ask every guest. We get, you know, folks that are more experienced and less experienced, but like you have a long history working in the field. So like, what's one thing you wish you had known sooner when you sort of embarked on all of this? Maybe not necessarily just running software in production, but like all of the things that you're now sort of involved with. Like you've, you've come from, you know, operations, you were a CTO for a while, and, and now you're doing this kind of work. Like what, what do you wish you had sort of known earlier, maybe in your career or earlier in this path to, to incident analysis? So one thing comes to mind, and that is a thing that I wish that I had kind of known, or at least 
if I would want my future self to come back and say, now pay attention to this, <laughs> is that previously in the industry, solutions that were that have um, you know previously been arrived at, let's say software development. In that case, you could say waterfall, right? Mm. Um, let's take that as an example. We can be really confident that the way to do a thing, whether it's software development or, or incident analysis or cooperating between application developers and infrastructure and ops engineers should always be up for critical thinking, critical, you know, there's, there's um, just because it's been done before and has been demonstrated to be somewhat successful doesn't mean, oh yeah, yeah, we already know how to do that. And doesn't mean that it doesn't shouldn't require people to think about how it can be improved. And as like a as like a, a an early in my career, I thought, oh, that's how software gets developed. Okay, I, I just sort of learned that, and then okay, great. Well, actually, no. It turns out that there's there's been between then and now a huge amount, yeah. sort of somewhat of an explosion of practices and beliefs that say, actually, you know what? There is a thing that's beyond what we took for granted as that's the way, that's the way, because the elders said that was, you know, how we do things around here. And I didn't really question it. Oh, absolutely. All right. And one other question. Is there anything else about running software production, incident analysis that you're glad we didn't ask you about? Yes, I'm really glad that you didn't ask me about Incident response frameworks like Incident Command and ICS and IMS. The reason why I'm glad you didn't ask me is because were you to ask me, I would punt on the question and point to a work by an amazing cognitive systems engineer named Laura McGuire, who did her PhD dissertation on what's known as costs of coordination. There's a talk that she gave that sort of highlights uh, what our findings were, but sort of the, the teaser that I give people is that ICS does not, and ICS-like or ICS sort of based frameworks don't come for free and the costs associated with them might not be readily apparent, but they're real. Mm -hmm. So that's my, I, I, I turn, try to turn the question into a bit of a cliffhanger to get people to want to uh, <laughs> to go learn more. Awesome. That's what we want people to do. Absolutely. Maybe we'll have to get in touch with her and see if she wants to come on the show sometime. Yes, you do. That would be super awesome. All right. Well, I think that's uh, all we have time for today. Thank you so much, John, for joining us. This has been wonderful. Mandy, I'm so grateful you asked. Thank you very much. Awesome. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in. Uh, this is Mandy Walls, and I'm wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Pager to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you heard. You can find our show notes at pagertothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pagertothelimit using the number two. That's pagertothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. Beautiful days.